When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have, and I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners. And I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome to the Bet the Board podcast, powered by FanDuel Sportsbook. Go to FanDuel Sportsbook, sign up, $1,000 risk-free bet. Use the promo code BETTHEBOARD, backslash BETTHEBOARD, and it'll get you started for a big-time college and pro football season. I'm your host, Todd Furman, joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only, Pain Insider. How goes it this morning, my friend? It goes back a week later after that huge podcast that we just uh, released. I feel like... We did the Lord's work and included Notre Dame in the ACC preview this year, which is something people have been clamoring for for a while. That's partly why we went a little long last show. You know, it's always interesting because I feel like each of the last couple of years, we've tried to break down the conferences, identify teams and brands that are worth us doing deep dives on, not just from a national relevance standpoint, uh, but also from fan interest. And it seemed for the first couple of years we did these college football previews, we'd get to the final show, we'd go, oh shit, we didn't include Notre Dame. And every year we kind of had a scramble to get them baked into the week one preview in some capacity. That's right, we have done that. It just made sense. They are in the ACC last year, five ACC games this year. Squeeze them in there. This is the reason we timestamp everything. If you're a fan of just one specific team, you roll straight to it, listen for 15, 20 minutes, and uh, you're good to go. Boom. Yeah, and the nice part about this, you got six weeks before the season kicks off. No one's saying you got to sit down and listen for the the two of us ramble on and on for 90 minutes straight. Listen to a team here, a team there. We all know when everyone's starting to return to the office, they're not paying attention at their desk. Throw in the headphones, one preview at a time. You'll be all set and ready to go as it pertains to the five power conferences. Uh, Today, pain feels as good a day as any for us to do a, a little Big Ten. So we just spend, what, about an hour talking about Ohio State? And we partition out five minutes each on maybe six or seven other relevant teams in the league. I think Ohio State's the least interesting team of the entire Big Ten. I would go one step further and say that this may be the first year in recent memory that, at least for me, the Big Ten West holds a lot more intrigue than the Big Ten East. Oh, absolutely. 
a lot of you know, so much more up for grabs. I think there's just not a lot there in the Big Ten East, but we'll see. Comes down to C.J. Stroud. Yeah, and we can. Uh, you know what? Let's do it. Let's dive right into the scarlet and gray right off the top, where the Ohio State Buckeyes find themselves a prohibitive favorite yet again. Rinse and repeat for the boys there. Minus two twenty at FanDuel Sportsbook. To win the league, they are a robust 2-9 to nine favorite. Put up $4.50 to get a dollar coming back if you believe they're going to win the East. Their win total pegged at 11. You do have to lay a buck and a quarter to go under. And Payne, when it comes to the Buckeyes and what Ryan Day is building and assume the reins from Urban Meyer, success there is gauged entirely by national titles. It's not league championships. It's not division crowns or anything else along those lines. And this is a program that's won 21 straight over league opponents since losing to Purdue and West Lafayette uh, as a double-digit favorite a few seasons ago. And you mentioned the key change. No longer Justin Fields calling the shots under center. They have to hand the baton, most likely, uh, to C.J. Stroud, who comes in amid all sorts of hype. But let's see if he can go out there and materialize uh, on the football field. Ryan Day said something to your point in one of his off-season pressers. He said every day he wakes up scared. Because he knows it's championship or bust. That's it right now. So, C.J. Stroud is the question. Nobody on that roster has attempted a meaningful pass. And it sounds like he's going to be the guy. None of us really know what he'll be this season. We know the accolades, right? He's like a high-level high four-star recruit. The only quarterbacks that were rated higher in Stroud's class are starting for Alabama and Clemson this year. So, it's like nice company. He's got a massive arm can move real well. I think we saw that last year. He came in in garbage time against Sparty, right, and ran for that 48-yard touchdown. So he's a dual threat. He's going to be thrown to the best receivers in the country. That helps. And Ryan Day's offense is awesome. The guy's a genius. So I think he's going to be really comfortable, or at least try to make Shroud comfortable. By design, if you look, there aren't a lot of throws in traffic, right? It's a spread offense. It's vertical. The ball's thrown outside. That's going to be helpful for a young quarterback. But We'll know a lot more, I think, about C.J. Stroud after the opening season, right? You start the season on the road at Minnesota. It's not the best defense, but it's going to be a hostile environment. Then you get the home opener against Oregon, who we're projecting to have a top 10 defense. And I know Tulsa loses its best defender in Zayvon Collins, but I think they're going to probably still fight to be a top 30 defense. So there's some tests early for Stroud out of the gate. Now, look at the rest of the offense. Got great tackles in front of him. Probably a little drop-off on the interior. You lose studs like Wyatt Davis and Josh Myers. But I think there's some nice veteran depth to fill in there on the interior. They just have shown the last few years like this ability to mull you up front. And I think they'll be good again this year. Last season, sixth in line yards. Only 12% of runs were stuffed. There's big and nasty. They got a lot of veteran guys up there that are filling in that played in the Sparty game when 3-0 linemen starters were out. I think Trey Sermon... Could be a little bit of a loss, which was shocking to me. The way he played down the stretch, he was on fire. So I think he'll be missed a little bit. Trayvon Henderson's all the hype. He's the impact freshman at running back. I think he'll help Master Teague shoulder that load. I think at minimum, he's probably a really good help in the pass game. Henderson, I mean, he's just kind of freaky when you look at him. But ultimately, it comes back to where we started, Todd. It's it's C.J. Stroud. I think he determines Ohio State's ceiling offensively. But I will say this, and you mentioned there's a little bit of a, a discrepancy on what Ohio State is. You look at some places, it's like 11.2 wins with Juice. You look at other places, it's like 10.8 with Juice. We're more like 10.4, and we know all about the talent. But what is C.J. Stroud, right? He could be good, but is he 75% of Justin Fields? 
what if some of the question marks defensively for Ohio State aren't fixed? So for me, locking up money for five months hoping for a perfect season doesn't sound like the best use of funds. And it doesn't surprise me that there is some small under money trickling in a little bit here on, on, on Ohio State. I mean, you briefly mentioned their schedule, and we're going to know a lot about what Ohio State is after the first two weeks. I mean, you go further on down the road. The, the home game you mentioned against Tulsa Week 3, they'll get Akron at home. They go on the road to take on Rutgers for their second conference road game in early October, but there aren't really a whole heck of a lot of landmines. Indiana, I know we'll get to. They'll go to Bloomington for that game, and of course, they finish the season at Michigan. Uh, but if they're able to get through the first two games, and C.J. Stroud looks as good in his debut as maybe a guy like Jameis Winston did uh, in his debut yep. for Florida State, there can be a lot of optimism for this team. That game against Oregon, it's going to be tremendous the second week of the regular season as we'll really get a great read on both of those teams and where they stand. And I think you raised an excellent point talking about how much this Ohio State team, even last year with a veteran quarterback, relied on their ground game. They didn't get going until Trey Sermon started to shoulder the lion's share of responsibilities. Master Teague never really proved to be that burstful back. So we'll see what Travian Henderson provides. And defensively, hey, look, I think the biggest question Kerry Coombs has to ask Payne that we were asking most of last year, secondary really can't get worse by Ohio State standards. I mean, this was a team that gave up a shade less than six yards per play, the worst in school history. So from a defensive standpoint, I guess just be average and hope your young quarterback uh, is able to pick up right where your veteran left off. Ohio State's defense needs to be much better than average, and I think they will, but there is going to be a drop-off because we're not quite sure what the secondary is going to look like. The entire linebacking core is gone. And candidly, as much as I love Ryan Day, they have not shown defensively a willingness to adapt. But it sounds like they may. There, There's some discussions of, of shifting and adapting to a 4-2-5. So you mentioned the secondary got torched last year. Sean Wade finished his career on a downtrend. Savion Banks was supposed to be the guy. 22 catches and three touchdowns allowed in coverage the final three games. All in all, Ohio State finished 58th in passing success rate defense, 59th in explosive pass defense, 105 overall in EPA defense. That secondary's got to improve. When we did the national championship preview, Todd, I was explicit that if Ohio State stayed in their 4-3 and thought linebackers were going to cover Bama wide receivers, it's going to be a long, <laughs> long night. And we gave out Bama team total over. We didn't think Ohio State would adapt. And sure enough, you got guys like Pete Werner and, and Tough Borland are out there trying to cover Devontae Smith and company in the slot. And Ohio State gets torched. My understanding is Ohio State is going to try to adapt to the times and go with a 4-2-5 this season. They're going to have a fifth man in the secondary, likely a safety, which they're going to call the bullet position. Part of this is getting torched by Bama. The other part is losing your top four linebackers from last season. So there are some holes defensively. So I think some of those are the things defensively to look for. Now, Ohio State obviously has like you know, an embarrassment of riches defensively. I mean, they got Jack Sawyer and now this kid that they just signed, TJ, and I'm going to butcher the name, Tui Moalolo, in the last few days. Two five-star guys that, that, that are going to be enough. impact freshmen. Oh, I thought that was a, a game effort on the pronunciation of his name, especially in the preseason. He's only been there less than a week. I didn't quite stick the landing. The Russian judge may have discounted a point there at the end, but I thought it was a good first effort. But uh, I just I don't think this is going to be a dominant unit. I, I do see some regression from last year, but it's still going to be a top 25 to 30 defense. 
but I, I don't think it's there. There's some question marks there for sure. Yeah, and and the one thing is we've seen time and time again as far as it pertains to the Big Ten and the uh, proverbial gauntlet, which is anything but for Ohio State, that secondary doesn't often get tested by NFL caliber quarterbacks until they get to the big stage, which includes the semifinal games uh, and potential championships. So maybe it's Oregon in week two. Maybe it is Tanner Morgan week one or down the road if they face a healthy Michael Penix. But there aren't a lot of quarterbacks that you look through that Buckeye schedule and go, hey, look, these guys are going to carve us up week in, week out. So you have to take it, wait and see. And oftentimes there can be some noise in the numbers. But uh, from Ohio State to the school up north with the Michigan Wolverines, they're 25 to 1 to win the Big Ten, 14 to 1 to win the Big Ten East at FanDuel Sportsbook. And you look at their win total, it's seven. You do have to lay a buck and a quarter to go over the total. I mean, the reality of things for Michigan, Payne, is this is a program that has a proud tradition. We know about Coach Harbaugh being on the hot seat and not getting those wins, especially against the aforementioned uh, Ohio State Buckeyes. Michigan this offseason, they overhauled a lot of coaches, so there'll be a number of different faces out there. But Josh Gaddis returns as the offensive coordinator in conjunction with Sharon Moore. You see Mike McDonald come in as the new defensive coordinator, obviously a Harbaugh tie as the former linebacking coach uh, in Baltimore. But when you look at the Michigan Wolverines, from an offensive standpoint, all signs are pointing at Cade McNamara being their starting quarterback, but maybe there's a little bit more that'll be decided in fall camp before we ultimately know who the man taking snaps under center is for their opener against Western Michigan. It's not just a big year for the quarterback position, but Josh Gaddis. This feels like a really crucial season for him. And, you know, we know the offense has changed dramatically, but the efficiency hasn't improved. And so that was one thing that we banged the table for, right? We just kind of need to get out of this BC-type offense, right? This archaic offense. But the year before Gaddis got there, Michigan passed 40% of the time. Last year, was 56% passed. So we like that. The year before Gaddis arrived, Michigan used heavy formation sets 65% of the time. Last year, just 33%. So there was that stylistic shift that we were hoping for. But the efficiency hasn't followed. In fact, it's gone backwards. So this is a huge year for Gaddis because if the offense fails again, he's probably out of town. You mentioned Caden McNamara. That's the question. I know it looks like he's the guy that's in the driver's seat heading into fall camp. Alan Bowman said he didn't transfer in not to start. And obviously, J.J. McCarthy, the five-star prized quarterback, is the most talented of that bunch. But I think our understanding is the same here, Todd. It sounds like McNamara is, is the leader right now. He knows the offense best. He's the only guy that's played in it. And when I watch him, right, it's clear he knows where the ball needs to go. Does kind of give off a game manager vibe. But when Michigan's O-line kept them clean, McNamara was good. When Michigan threw the play action, McNamara was good. Whoever starts under center, though, I, I think the offensive line will be improved. So that's going to help. The injury luck last year was terrible. So I think there'll be a healthier unit up front. Michigan's O-line wasn't good last year because of those injuries creating room for its backs outside the top 80 and line yards and stuff rates. I like the running back room this year. I think Haskins, now he's the full-time starter, is going to be really good. The freshman, Donovan Edwards, appears to be the kind of back like Harbaugh has not had at Michigan yet. He looks bursty. He looks like he can get outside. I think he's going to contribute at minimum in the pass game out of the backfield. He just appears to be the type of back that Harbaugh has just been like hoping and praying for. This is by far the best back that he's recruited, I think. Question marks, though, at receiver. Once you get past Ronnie Bell, 
you had Giles Jackson surprisingly transfer out after spring ball to Washington. So not only do you lose probably your best, eh, your second best receiver, but he transfers to a team Michigan plays week two. So I'm sure he's <laughs> going to spill the beans a little bit on what Josh Gaddis wants to do. And then Michigan did land Dalen Baldwin, the Jackson State transfer. Apparently it worked out for both Ohio State and Penn State and both offered. Baldwin chose Michigan, so let's see what impact he has. The fortunate thing for Michigan's offense, Todd, the first month of the season, you get Western Michigan, you get NIU, you get Rutgers defensively. All of those defenses were projecting outside the top 80. So Michigan has a chance to at least get it going early. There are some brutal games on the schedule. Out of conference, as I mentioned, against Washington. You're at Wisconsin and Penn State. You close the year with Ohio State. But at least early on, the offense has a chance to build some momentum, get acclimated to whichever quarterback it is in this new system. Our number on Michigan, 7.2. I know under 8 was extremely sharp. There are other places out there that are still dealing like 7.7, 7.8. If you could find those and and you want to fade Michigan, go for it. There is some value there. Not enough for me, but there is some value there. When you look at Michigan paint on the defensive side of the ball, we're expecting a scheme change to go to a 3-4. Don Brown's defense that looked old and antiquated, not every week, but every time they stepped up in class against Ohio State, will be a thing of the past. Uh, An uncharacteristically bad Michigan stop unit last season. There are some playmakers in this particular group, though, but they have to be much more effective in creating those havoc plays. Last year, the defense struggled to force turnovers with only two picks and a takeaway. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Coming every 155 snaps, easy for me to say. When you look at Michigan defensively, do we think we can expect a positive regression this year in Ann Arbor? Let's hope. You know, at least you have the full offseason to implement this style change. And you mentioned Don Brown's out, Mike McDonald's in, going to a 3-4. We have seen a mass exodus of defenders transferring out, mostly at linebacker. That's what happens when you switch to a 3-4. But... What I am hearing, even if the scheme may look different, I think the principles are still going to be the same. Right? It's going to be a bunch of blitz. It's going to be playing man. Michigan was the most blitz-happy team in college football last season. They played man at the sixth highest rate. And I think that's ultimately what they're going to do because Mike McDonald is from the school of the Baltimore Ravens defense, which is exactly that. The question really for me is, does Michigan have the talent at corner to hold up in that style? And they just haven't shown that they're plentiful at that position. Over 15% of passes Michigan faced last year ended up being explosive. Over 6% of passes ended up in 30-plus yard gains last season. So it's fine if you want to shift your scheme, but if the principles are the same with constant blitzing and press coverage, I don't know if they have the Jimmys and Joes to pull that off. The rest of the defense, there was issues there too. It wasn't just the secondary. I mean, 120th and Havoc rate. So nothing was really happening at or behind the line of scrimmage. 125th in snaps between takeaways. So they didn't turn anybody over. 123rd in stuff rate. So the guys up front weren't really penetrating all that well. So it's one thing to get beat deep, right? If you're playing, if if you're making plays behind the line of scrimmage, you're going to sacrifice a deep shot or two if you're going to turn someone over. That never happened in 2020. You're looking at the secondary. It's going to be basically Vincent Gray and Jim and Green. They have to take the take their game to the next level. Great safeties. Daxon Hill and Hawkins. Josh Ross in the middle is solid. And you have Aiden Hutchinson. He can be a round one pick if he stays healthy and has a monster season. There's just not much depth past those five guys, though. 
And we also saw Michigan lost its secondary coach before fall. You brought in uh, Maurice Lindquist, who everyone seems to rave about. He took the Buffalo job. Michigan players, if you were listening and reading some of the quotes, they were like, Maurice came in and just infused energy into the entire team. And poof, he's gone. I mean, not even going to be there for a game. So I think there isn't quite the depth or the talent there for Michigan yet to actually show a ton of improvement. But if you can stay healthy on the offensive side of the ball, if McNamara can be a solid game manager, if you can get the ground game going a little bit, if the defense just isn't an abject disaster like it was last year, and it's very tough to be as bad as last year, there is going to be some improvement for Michigan. You just wonder how much that improvement is going to be. Well, if there are question marks surrounding the Wolverines, I think there are just as many surrounding their conference rivals that reside in Happy Valley. When you look at Penn State, Payne, they're listed at 9-1 to to win the Big Ten at FanDuel Sportsbook, 6-1 to to emerge from the Big Ten East. And when their win total hovering right around 9, you do have to lay a substantial price to go under. James Franklin has come in kind of selling that dream of optimism. At least he did when he arrived in Happy Valley. I'm not so sure it's as simple as waving a magic wand, and there's no doubt for Penn State, they righted the ship last year in a season that can be rather difficult to do so. You start off losing, what, five straight games, you finish with four straight victories, but if you dig into the opponents they beat down the stretch for those four wins, Michigan, Rutgers, Michigan State, and Illinois, not exactly who... Uh, the Navy and White have to knock off if they're going to be relevant in the conference discussion. And again, which seems to be a rinse and repeat approach and not necessarily for the best, James Franklin going to his fourth new offensive coordinator in just five seasons. When we look at Penn State, do we think they bounce back from last year or is it more trouble in the not-so-happy Happy Valley? Whatever James Franklin is selling seems to be working on the 2022 recruiting class. I am not a James Franklin guy. I think you and I both hear rumblings outside of what we do that he's not the best human. And he's kind of phony. So I'm I'm not a James Franklin guy. And I think we probably saw that again this offseason. But ultimately, he's got to figure out what he wants his offensive identity to be. I know he's a defensive coach. But you got to figure out in the year 2021 when offense equates to winning far more than defense, what your program's offensive identity is going to be. You can't constantly change the foundation, expect sustainability. And, you know, firing your first-year OC in a COVID-shortened offseason without spring practice comes off as insane to me. Not being able to understand horrific turnover luck is the reason you got off to the slow start is a little puzzling. And you mentioned it. In comes Mike Yershik, Penn State's fourth OC in five years. The cupboard isn't bare on offense. Let's put it that way. Penn State actually finished top 25 in offensive EPA. They were just, again, one of the unluckiest teams in college football. Poor fumble. And Clifford constantly airmailed passes that led to picks. But if you look at the entire body of work, PSU had the 13th best EPA margin in college football despite a losing record. So you could make the case that the stock indicator, if, if Penn State is a stock, is just pointing up because of those things. Offensively, there's three key things. It's it's Sean Clifford, as you mentioned. What is he? What can he be? The O-line, which seems like, I don't know, he just hasn't figured out the O-line situation there. There's always a question mark. And then what receivers are going to emerge past Jahan Dotson? Clifford's the obvious. He just has to play better. 
His pocket presence was terrible last year. His footwork was terrible. It's why he airmails all those passes. Then he loses his confidence and doesn't even try to get the ball deep. He got to a point where he just wouldn't even throw deep. 9% of his passes went 20 or more yards. Clifford wasn't good under pressure. Wasn't good when he was blitzed. I really think Penn State would be better getting him to go back to being more of a game manager. Right, Get the ball out quickly and on time. Use more play action. And if you look, there was areas where Clifford was elite last year. He was very good with play action. Adjusted completion percentage of 75%, 10.5 yards an attempt, no picks, 130 passer rating. When he knew where to go with the ball and got it out quickly in those intermediate areas, Clifford was was damn good. The running back room is loaded. The key is the offensive line getting better. There just wasn't a lot of push up front last season, barely inside the top 50 in line yards. And I think that number is really inflated when you look at the best runs coming from Clifford, creating that extra man advantage in the box. So those numbers I would kind of throw out a little bit in terms of line yards. Clifford had 60 designed runs. He led PSU in rushing once you remove sack yardage. In protection, PSU was outside the top 100 in passing down sack rate allowed. So when defenses could pin their ears back and get to the quarterback in these known passing situations, they did. The interior of the offensive line, still unsettled, had to bring in a Harvard transfer. At this point, they haven't named a starting center. Let's see what happens here in fall camp, but it's one of the most important positions on the football field. And then I mentioned, you know, Jahan Dotson. Very good receiver, but who else is going to emerge? You know, you have these two four-star kids from 2020 in Parker Washington and KLS. Brenton Strange came on at tight end last season when Fryermuth got injured. He showed to be pretty damn good. When he was targeted, quarterbacks had a 145 passer rating. So hopefully he becomes a nice security blanket for Clifford there, but there isn't really a sure thing past Dotson. Now, the other interesting part here, Todd, when I look at the schedule, PSU is going to face five defenses. We're projecting to finish top 20 in efficiency. So it is a brutal schedule from that standpoint for Penn State's offense. I mean, the other thing too, Payne, when you talk about Penn State and their offensive line concerns, their week one opponent, probably not the team you want to face when you're unsettled in the trenches, going to Camp Randall in an environment. And let's not ignore the fact that most of these kids last year played in venues that were had a handful of fans, if that. You're now going into hostile territory. You talk about not being able to name a center to have that continuity. Things, in my opinion, for Penn State, and we'll get to their defense in a second, could snowball quickly because not only do you play a physical opponent week one in Wisconsin, you get two teams that I think are going to be much better than people anticipate coming into your building in subsequent weeks. Ball State not going to be as physical in the trenches, but hey, they're good by max standards. And then you get the rare SEC opponent coming on the road up north. I mean, if things don't start well for Penn State, maybe the Nittany Lions are staring down the barrel of an 0-3 start in an absolute worst-case scenario. That would be the worst-case scenario, yes. And that opening game, I think, is one that... I'm going to watch pretty closely, and I'll probably watch it multiple times because I think there's a lot of question marks about what Wisconsin can be. Can Penn State bounce back? I think we're going to find out a lot about those two teams in that week one game. And defensively, when we look at Penn State, last year they allowed a school worst, nearly 28 points per game. They gave up more than 30-plus in five games. Clearly that middle linebacking group was never settled with Micah Parsons opting out. Defensive line, even this year in my estimation, Payne's still a major concern as there's not a lot of continuity there. They weren't able to generate pressure. Uh, what do we think we're going to see from the uh, Nittany Lions stop unit? The opposite of its offense, Penn State's defense doesn't really face a gauntlet of a schedule. And that's that's the positive. Our projection has PSU facing one offense in the top 30 this season. 
and that team's Ohio State, and they're replacing its its first round quarterback. You mentioned the big question. It is up front a little bit. Penn State loses, you know, a first round pick in Jason Owe. Shaka Tony was also drafted. Antonio Shelton transferred to Florida. They were the three best defensive linemen Penn State had last year. You get the Temple transfer. Biakite is his name, I believe. Looks like he's the real deal. He maybe softens the blow of of OA and Tony leaving. They added a Duke transfer, Derek Tangelio. He's a depth guy. He's supposed to replace Shelton. Let's see. You basically have young guys that we haven't seen. They're going to be required to contribute. And if Penn State's going to improve defensively, it's going to be on those guys. Because I think there were some really dicey situations last year, at least defensively, that need improving. It wasn't just like Sean Clifford being a disaster. I mean, you look at PSU's defense, they let 30 or more points in each of their first five games. It would have been much worse had they not stopped so many fourth down attempts. When I deep dive into some of the important metrics, like PSU was not their normal self, down to down, 40% success rate allowed. Um, You know, as hyped as the secondary is, on early downs, PSU got torched through the air, 72nd in defensive pass efficiency on early downs. There wasn't a lot of negative plays being created either. Penn State was 70th in Havoc, 59th in stuff rate. That's why you only create nine takeaways. I know a lot of people will look and say, like, and you kind of hinted at this at the top, that PSU's defense improved down the stretch, only allowed 17 points a game the final four weeks is what I'm hearing. But you mentioned that list of teams, Rutgers, Sparty, Illinois, Michigan, average offensive efficiency rank of those four teams last year was 85th. Two of those teams, Michigan and Illinois, started freshman quarterbacks in those games. They, the season was lost. It was done. It was over. They were transitioning to next year already. So, I mean, I've seen projections from others, Todd, that have PSU's defense flirting with potentially being a top-five unit this season. Feels extremely aggressive, uh, even with this offset schedule. Yeah, I think a lot of people have bought into some of the Penn State hype. I know it's a team that we talked about off the air that, that felt like there are some real aggressive projections, not just with their defense, but their overall ceiling for this season. And hey, maybe Sean Clifford will prove me wrong. There's definitely been quarterbacks uh, that things have clicked. I just hate the idea of now bringing in a new offensive scheme, much like you mentioned at the top, talking about you brought in an OC that came you know, with a good resume. And Kirk Soroka out of Minnesota, you can him after one season and you didn't have spring practice. You were interrupted with COVID protocols and a variety of other things. I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, for me, it's the glass half full at absolute best, but uh, I'm not quite sure this is the bounce back season in Happy Valley that a lot of people anticipate. Uh, a team last well, I don't year... think they're going to have a losing record. So from that no, perspective, no, 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 yes, no, no. but I don't think they're reaching... Penn State levels, or I guess we should probably say the perception of what Penn State levels are. No, no, no. I'm not saying this is a team that's going to struggle to go 6-6 six and six and make the Music City Bowl by any stretch of the imagination, but I think when you look at Penn State and its pedigree, people expect them to be a 10-win team, yeah. and if you're doing you know, anything less than that, uh, somehow it's a disappointment. So we'll see if they can achieve some of those lofty goals. A team who clearly exceeded expectations a season ago was the Indiana Hoosiers. And a hat tip to Tom Allen and what he was able to do, taking a early season upset of Penn State and using that to kind of crest the momentum uh, until they lost to Ohio State and then came up a touch short in their bowl game against Ole Miss. When you look at Indiana, they are 20-1 to at FanDuel Sportsbook to win the Big Ten, 10-1 to to emerge from the Big Ten East, and their win total sits at 7.5 flat. 
I mean, the one thing, Payne, that I think was evident that we had talked about was that this is now a program that appears to be built on camaraderie. There's a lot more chemistry. Everyone's pulling in the same direction. Can it pay dividends against a much more difficult schedule that the Hoosiers will encounter in 2021 with a target on their back than what they were able to do a season ago? So right off the top, we have seen some under money on Indiana. Depending on where you look, it's either eight under minus 150 or the number you mentioned there. It's really interesting because Tom Allen does seem to get more out of his talent. Everyone's bought in. They love him. And from our perspective, right, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone not in the Hoosiers building that's been more bullish on Indiana the last 18 to 24 months than us. But there is expectation now, right? There's $5 million contracts to live up to for Tom Allen. There's Penix Jr. being anointed the best quarterback in the Big Ten by some, despite not finishing a single season and tearing the same ACL twice. When I dug into Indiana, there are two dramatically different sides to last season's success. And the optimistic and positive side is 6-1 and one in the Big Ten. Only loss on the highway to Ohio State by one score, and they made the championship. And now you look at Indiana, and they return over 80% of that production on both sides of the ball. It sounds great. The other side of the coin is really ugly, though, and it's that Indiana finished 110th in EPA differential last season, which effectively means when you account for every single snap on both sides of the ball, Indiana's defense allowed a greater EPA than its own offense achieved. Okay, That's basically what that means. The offensive success was not very good. They were only successful on 38% of snaps. That was outside the top 105 offenses. Indiana's trench play wasn't good either. Couldn't pass protect, couldn't open up holes in the ground game. 118th in rushing success rate, 121st in explosive runs. Penix, there's a reason he's constantly getting injured, and it's because he's been throwing (laughs) from his ass. Okay? Among quarterbacks with at least 100 dropbacks last season, Penix had the 12th least time to throw. He's pressured on 41% of his dropbacks. You know, he had to treat the ball like a hot potato so many times. That needs to improve because when, when Penix is able to throw the ball, and this is what everyone loves about him, and he doesn't have pressure in his face and he has time, he's damn good. 111 passer rating, 74% adjusted completion percentage last year when he was protected. Now, I think the hope is that left tackle Caleb Jones plays more than 60% of games and he looks like an NFL tackle. And that Michigan transfer Zach Carpenter makes an impact on the interior of the line. If Indiana's offensive line can go from five orange pylons to below average, maybe, maybe Indiana can meet the eight-win expectation or go over seven and a half where it is some places. But the schedule out of the gate isn't pleasant. I mean, we're we're going to know pretty early on if pass protection is better, if there's more running lanes being open, because three of Indiana's first five games, Todd, we're projecting those defenses to finish inside the top 15 in efficiency. Yeah, taking your show on the road week one for a conference showdown at Kinnick Stadium against Iowa, probably not the way that you want to break in an offensive line, especially if Michael Penix isn't fully at 100%. And we'll get a better indication of where that knee is when practice reports start to circulate throughout the course of the fall. I know Jack Tuttle filled in for him, but let's not kid ourselves. Penix is the guy that makes that offense go, largely because they have some, in our opinion, underrated weapons out there in the likes of Ty Freifogel, DJ Matthews, an FSU transfer, and, of course, the big fella in Titan, Peyton Hendershot. <laughs> you uh, 
You mentioned DJ Matthews. So... We get story we time? We obviously story saw time some unfortunate news with Tamari and Terry. Uh, DJ Matthews is the one that gave Tamari and Terry his nickname of, of Scary Terry. And uh, we now see potentially why. And so that's an interesting fella to bring to Bloomington. So it'll be interesting to see how DJ Matthews works there. Yeah, you have to hope that he buys in to the... The we over me concept that Tom Allen is trying to foster there. Uh, Miles Marshall, another guy who we saw make a few explosive plays last year, but just wasn't consistent enough in that offense. Defensively, you talked about what this group was able to do for stretches. Uh, we know they bring back a ton of continuity for their 4-2-5 defense. Taiwan Mullen, probably the player to watch in the secondary. I mean, an absolute ball hawk that can eliminate huge portions of the field. And while Indiana last year, you talked about their EPA metrics, I mean, this was a group that kind of epitomized the true bend but don't break mantra. They allowed just 3.3 points per drive and had a 36% stop rate inside the 20. Payne, I don't have to be a math wizard to figure out that that's probably not going to be sustainable if you continue to let your opponents into the green zone, let alone the red zone. Oh, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, you also are dealing with a new defensive coordinator, Charlton Warren. And the pedigree is pretty good. He spent the last few seasons in the SEC as the DB coach for Georgia. And Indiana is going to play a 4-2-5. So it's predicated on good DBs and a good DB coach. And what players are saying, from what I've read and poked around and heard, is that the defense might actually be a little bit more aggressive despite keeping that scheme. It's a really quirky defense. You know, it's undersized. The front seven isn't all that great. The last few years, we've seen them get bullied in the trenches. Last year was pretty much the same, 113th in line yards, 117th in stuff rate. But the secondary is the strength, and Indiana is going to play to that strength formationally, which makes a ton of sense. Most of the pressure generated is from exotic blitzes and stunts. Natural pressure has not really happened for Indiana the last few years. 47% blitz rate last year. But what's interesting is, when they started to manufacture that pressure, it got home a bunch. And the secondary made a ton of plays. And that's how Indiana survived on defense last season, by creating havoc. But as you're kind of hinted at here, it, it's tough to replicate a lot of these variance metrics which helped Indiana survive defensively. You mentioned the red zone, for instance. Typically, that has a ton of variance season to season. Indiana faced 25 red zone trips last year, nine of them teams came up with zero points less than half resulted in touchdowns batted balls galore almost 20 percent of opponent possessions ended in turnovers but you add it all up and you actually dig into some of these uh predictive metrics indiana was 78th in defensive epa which is well below the national average and so you know despite all the the luck metrics grossly in their favor it wasn't the best down-to-down defense fortunately you know, Indiana only plays two offenses this year that we're projecting to finish in the top 30. So maybe maybe that's the saving grace that allows Indiana to overachieve again. Hey, it's an interesting team. There's a lot to be said about culture and being able to defy the metrics, but we talk time and time again. You can sneak up on league opponents uh, when nobody's expecting much from you. It's a little bit different once you've arrived, so to speak, 
uh, and being able to maintain that perch, knowing you're going to get everyone's best shot. And you talked about the schedule. We can just look at the first three weeks going to Kinnick to take on Iowa, a home game against Idaho, and a game that'll go a long, long way in defining not only Indiana season, but also their opponents when they play host to Cincinnati uh, that third week of the season. So we'll keep tabs on the Hoosiers, probably you know one of the more relevant teams in the East. But as we pivot from the East to the West, I want to again remind all of you, our loyal listeners, go to FanDuel Sportsbook backslash bet the board, sign up, uh, and use our code. Take advantage of the $1,000 risk-free bet. It is the perfect way to build your bankroll for football season. Use it for our best bets, win totals, you name it. A variety of ways to get in on the action even before the season gets here. Encourage you to follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there as well. Most importantly, though, follow the podcast at BetTheBoardPod for all sorts of great updates as we inch ever so close to meaningful football about six weeks away. Payne, when we begin to look at the landscape in the West, uh, I think this is where there's a lot of intrigue because there's question marks. None of these teams appear to be airtight on paper, offering an explosive offense uh, and complementary defense to go along with it. Wisconsin is the favorite, at least on paper. They're 6-1 to one to win the entire conference at FanDuel Sportsbook. They're minus 125 to win the West. You look at their win total, 9.5 over minus 120. And not to drudge up painful memories, but a lot of our listeners from a season ago remember that the Badgers were the bane of our existence when it came to best bets as we continue to watch them struggle to move the ball 3-5 to five yards a pop. But last season didn't include spring practice and it was interrupted by a major COVID outbreak Graham Mertz should be healthier going into this season. The receivers that weren't on the roster or were available late in the campaign, specifically Danny Davis III and Kendrick Pryor, should be healthy and ready to go, uh, along with Jalen Berger as a game-breaker at running back. But when you look at this Wisconsin team, do we think that what we see on paper can translate to real-world football success? So the reason for optimism, and it sounds like you're extremely optimistic based on kind of your tone, you know I love it's teams that can't score. Mertz. You know I love college football teams that can't score. Wisconsin, Michigan <laughs> State, the list goes on and on. Graham Mertz is interesting, right? We all saw the opener against Illinois where he didn't throw a single inaccurate pass, and we're like, eh, I see what the five-star hype is about. But that was as good as it got. Mertz was really bad after that. Now, you mentioned some of the reasons, right? Injured throwing shoulder. He missed multiple games because of COVID. He didn't get any spring ball. The receiver group wasn't great, and then it got injured. And the Wisconsin's running back room, Todd, was that maybe the worst I've seen in two decades? Oh, I don't even know. That, I mean, that may be they the worst ever in running Wisconsin back history. This season. It, it was terrible. So, you know, you hate to make excuses, but there's validity to what Wisconsin went through offensively last season. Now, where the uh, you know conundrum is here is how much positive projecting can you do? And so there's a wide range of opinions on Wisconsin that I've seen from, you know, winning the conference and fighting for a playoff berth if C.J. Stroud isn't the guy to, you know, eh, this is like an eight-win team. Without question, Wisconsin's offense is improving. But how far is the leap? And, I mean, it was ugly last year. 111th in, in offensive EPA. Less than 38% of offensive snaps graded successful outside the top 100 in explosiveness. Mertz, in terms of EPA per pass attempt, was worse than Adrian Martinez as a passer. So you have to take this large leap of faith and manually adjust for Mertz, not having spring ball and, again, dealing with the shoulder and the serious bout of COVID, and he missed almost three weeks. And 
So those are some things, right? Didn't have good running backs, had suspect receivers. But how far can you manually adjust Wisconsin's projection upwards is the question, because that's what you have to do. And so that becomes really interesting to me. I, Paul Christ, I think, knows this is a big season, that there needs to be offensive improvement. It's why he's taken on the, the added role of quarterback coach and play caller. So that tells you, I, I think, a lot. There's zero excuses this year, right? I mean, Mertz is going to be pressured on like less than 20% of his dropbacks because the O-line is elite. And you mentioned Jalen Berger. I think he's got the potential to be the next great Wisconsin back. But I'll be candid, as I as I said before, like that opener against Penn State, another team that had a you know WTF-like season, it's going to be one that I watch closely. I'm probably going to watch it multiple times. Wisconsin, though, looking at the schedule, they evade Ohio State. And Penn State, Notre Dame, Michigan, and the Iowa games are either home or neutral site. Only four road games this season. So there is real potential if Graham Mertz is the quarterback that he looked like against Illinois. There's reason to uh, to have some optimism for Wisconsin this year. Yeah, I mean, I knew that the offense was bad last year because of what our eyes told us when we watched them week to week. I had no idea it was actually as bad from an explosive play standpoint as terms of when I looked at the overall history. Six plays of 30 or more yards and 495 offensive snaps. Payne, that might have been good in 1952, uh, but in 2020, that's not really going to get it done, especially when you have a grand total of three plays that covered 40-plus yards. Now, fortunately for Wisconsin, you mentioned that offensive line, that's a— Big reason for the optimism. But defensively, while this may be a big season for Paul Christ, they better get the most out of their stop unit because Jim Leonard's not going to be their DC for long. I'm honestly surprised he decided to spurn NFL overtures to come back to Camp Randall and Madison uh, and to be the architect behind this defense. Uh, but this is a group that led the league in total defense a season ago, finished ninth in scoring defense, and that was despite an offense that really gave them no silver lining as it felt they were constantly behind the eight ball and spending a lot of time out there after that Badgers offense went three and out. You think there's something Jim Leonard knew that a lot of people didn't know? I think there's always some things that Jim Leonard knows, and uh, I don't think it's coincidence when you talk about making the uh, potential three- to four-hour career shift heading up I-94 into northern Wisconsin. Yeah, and now Jim Leonard's going to have another really good defense. He's one of the best coaches in football, and that's why you start to wonder if he knew something before many others because no clue how the Packers didn't close him on that pitch. But he's got a lot returning. I mean, he turned down Florida State like a year ago. He's, he's been turning down jobs. Well, right turning now. down Florida State's just a smart move. Let's not let's not <laughs> kid ourselves here. That's a prudent career decision that Jim Leonard made. So I'm not going to fault the guy for that. So, you know, when you look at Wisconsin, top 25 in returning production. The linebacker group's elite. And Leonard seems to get the most out of his secondary because he's a former secondary guy. So he coaches up the position really well. He also brought in Hank Petit, a former NFL corner, to help with the secondary this year. I think the question for Wisconsin becomes is up front. You know, they they seem to do very well transitioning. But guys like Keanu Benton, you know, James Thompson, Cade McDonald, they have to step up and be consistent along that defensive line. You know, what impact is four-star freshman TJ Bowler is going to have. Will Isaac Towns in the Oregon transfer be an immediate impact guy on the edge? So those are the guys up front that are really going to have to make some hay. They have to be able to get natural pressure. I think Jim Leonard, when you look at his defense, 
very aggressive, but I don't think he wants to blitz that much. He's he's willing to play an aggressive defense, and he does like to press, and he likes to blitz, but Wisconsin sent blitz on more than 44% of snaps last year. It's a top 20 rate in college football. But we did see it left his, his secondary exposed on the back end a bit. And, you know, Wisconsin finished 58th in explosive pass defense. So by nature, it's an aggressive defense, but I don't think Leonard wants to blitz that much in 2021. The, the positive, though, when you start to project out ahead and you start to look at the schedule, Wisconsin is not going to face a top 20 offense all season based on our projections. Not one. So obviously something, you know, an offense could emerge. But when we're looking at our preseason projections, we're putting in our numbers. Jim Leonard is not going to face top 20 offense this year, which is uh, bodes well for Wisconsin. So there are some positive things here. If you do get Graham Mertz back in the saddle and he looks like the five-star quarterback and, and looking at the schedule of offenses that Jim Leonard's going to have to face, uh, there's there's a reason why this win total is 9.5. They are the clear-cut favorite on this side of the Big Ten. One thing that does provide a little bit of concern for me with Wisconsin, more so than other Big Ten teams, not necessarily the opponents that they'll face over the course of the regular season, but Wisconsin is the only team in the conference that has to play 10 straight games because their bye week comes so early. So they'll open up with a huge game against Penn State in their own building. They'll take on Eastern Michigan. They'll have that bye week. They'll have Notre Dame on a neutral, which will jumpstart a long stretch. And for a team whose running back depth could be a concern after Jalen Berger, uh, you wonder, you know, how healthy they'll be able to be this year compared to all the misfortunes they dealt with on the injury side a season ago. No question about it. That schedule is pretty interesting how it lays out. Obviously, in an ideal world, you'd like to have that by middle of the season. That is for sure. Uh, and at least on paper paying the biggest competition to Wisconsin for Big Ten West supremacy appears to be Kirk Ferentz's Iowa Hawkeyes. Iowa listed at 9-1 to at FanDuel Sportsbook to win the Big Ten. They're plus 175 to win the Big Ten West. And the win total for the Hawks, uh, that's 8.5, 8.5 flat, we'll call it right now. This was an Iowa team that started extremely slow last year but finished with six straight wins to close out the campaign. When you look at Iowa, figuring out when they're going to be successful, well, it's been a pretty straightforward formula. Iowa, 51-6. and when they run for 100 yards, 2-15 and 15 when they don't over the last six years. Fortunately for the Hawkeyes, this offense is built about a, around a potential All-American running back in Tyler Goodson. And hey, a lot of people are optimistic about what we could see out of Spencer Petras in his second season in Iowa City. You're not supposed to encourage Brian Ferentz to call more runs with that little nugget I think you may have. Well, I'm not encouraging to call more runs. Maybe use the passing game to open up the ground game. You have to think counterintuitively outside the box instead of slamming your head into a brick wall on first and second down and setting up third and intermediate every single time you play a team with an above-average defense. And I think that's the question for me because we've talked about Iowa's offensive ceiling only being so high with how they play and how Brian Ferentz calls a lot of predictable runs on predictable downs and there's this unwillingness to have quarterbacks' feet play a role within the offense. And Iowa's still a team that punts and plus territory in short yardage situations more than they probably should. And, you know, last season is the perfect example of all this because you have a great O-line. You have two receivers that are going to be on NFL rosters. You have the first team, all Big Ten running back, and yet you only finished 68th in offensive EPA and 61st in explosiveness last season. Brian Ferentz puts a governor on his own offense with how antiquated it is. Now, 
when I look at Iowa's offense this season, you mentioned Spencer Petras. I think it comes down to him. I think it comes down to the offensive line. You know, you lose a left tackle. You lose your top two right tackles. You lose a starting guard. There's also a new O-line coach. The projected left tackle missed the entire spring. So I do think we see a downgrade with Iowa's offensive line. The big question becomes is how large is the dip? And then, of course, Spencer Peters. He finished last season strong. Final two games against Illinois and Wisconsin were the only two that he finished with a passer rating above 100. His teammates are saying all the right things. They respect him for his work ethic. They claim he's the first one in the building and the last one to leave. Guys like Tracy and Regani in the receiver room are claiming that the timing is much better, that his accuracy and pocket presence has improved, and that he's learned to be a leader and he commands the huddle now. Kirk Ferentz has been saying Petrus's praise basically all offseason. He said it's night and day and that he had a great spring start to finish. Let's hope that's the case because his accuracy was really poor last season. And... <laughs> I mean, I guess you give him the deserved crutch that we give a lot of other teams and quarterbacks for last year is that it's a first-time starter in a shortened offseason with no spring because of the, the COVID chaos. But Peters had like this really bad combination of not pushing the ball downfield while also being inaccurate. It's not a good combination to be con- you know this, this conservative game manager that's also not accurate. Almost 55% of his throws were either short or behind the line of scrimmage. He only attempted deep throws 12% of the time. And going back to his pocket presence, Petrus was a disaster when he was pressured. O-line did a really good job keeping him clean. He was only pressured on 23% of dropbacks. But when he was pressured, 29 passer rating, 4.1 yards per attempt. So for me, QB, O-line are still the two question marks I have. I don't know if Petrus is just going to automatically become this accurate passer. Obviously does have a full off season to improve on that. But I would say the receiver room, while I don't think it's going to be a glaring issue, is certainly going to take a little tick back as well. Yeah, this is an interesting team. Uh, I mean, from an offensive line standpoint, they have arguably one of the best centers in the country in Tyler Lindenbaum, yep. but I'm not quite sure they have much beyond that. And, you know, while we can say what we want about Iowa needing to do what had to be done with uh, Coach Doyle being let go, he was an integral part of their strength and conditioning program in terms of getting these guys to be the linchpins and building blocks, not only that translated every Saturday throughout the fall, but the reason that Iowa has put so many offensive linemen into the National Football League. And when you talk about trenches for the Hawkeyes, there aren't just questions on the offensive side, Payne. There are plenty of questions defensively where they'll have to reload as well. You lose guys like Chancey Golston, Davian Nix, and Jack Heflin. Big shoes to fill on a defense that led the conference in fewest yards per play at 4.3 a pop. When you look at the Hawkeyes on that side of the ball, where do some of your biggest question marks come from? Or maybe on the converse, where are you most confident they're going to excel? I mean, you hit it perfectly. I think the question mark is is the defensive line, losing those two guys in Golston and Nixon. But it just oddly seems to be rinse and repeat for that position group at Iowa. So I didn't downgrade that unit as much as I probably would if it wasn't Iowa. And candidly, it wasn't a unit last year that got a ridiculous amount of pressure either. Now, it's damn near impossible to replicate last season just based on variance. I mean, Iowa's defense finished top eight in efficiency and EPA and explosiveness. 
past the defensive line, the linebacker room looks damn good. Jack Campbell has the potential to be a star. Secondary returns all four starters from a group that was top 10 in yards for pass attempt allowed. You get what you get with Iowa's defense. It's very meat and potatoes. Phil Parker lives in zone, and he dials up blitz. Um, Not all that often, right? It's it's really this, like, kind of sit back, uh, beat us by a thousand paper cuts kind of defense that we're just going to, hey, we're going to hang out here in zone, um, and we're going to see if we can get natural pressure. We're not going to leave ourselves exposed. It's just very bend but don't break, keep everything in front, Past the in-state game, though, against Iowa State, Iowa only faces one other offense that we're projecting inside the top 30 of the season. You know, you, you, you miss Ohio State. They get Indiana, Penn State, and Minnesota at a home. And looking at our preseason numbers, Iowa's uh, projected to be a favorite in 10 of 12 games. Now, there's a slew of toss-up games in there. But even like the trips to Iowa State and Wisconsin as it stands now, I was less than a touchdown dog in both of those. You know, we're projecting more of like the four to five point dog range in each of those games. So when I look at at Iowa, like I think they're going to be solid again. The floor seems to be really high, but I'm looking at our projection. It's 8.2 wins with juice. The market's at like 8.3. So there's not a ton of reason to tie up money for, for many months. But I could see a lot of variance, right? If this were any other team, Todd, that was replacing, you know, three starters along the O-line and, and both tackles and had an inaccurate quarterback and, you know, was replacing two NFL receivers and two all-Big Ten defensive linemen, we'd be calling for regression. But just Iowa seems to live in this ballpark of, of seven to nine wins. So it's it's tough to gauge. They're a model of consistency, and for a lot of Iowa fans, uh, sometimes it can be more frustrating than anything else with that occasional 10 and 2 season there but rarely a 6 and 6 is like you said 7 and 5 uh you can pencil Iowa in in good years they can go plus or minus a game or two in that particular department from the Iowa Hawkeyes pain in I believe the rivalry is the Floyd of Rosedale uh the Minnesota Golden Gophers who are listed at 30 to 1 uh to win the Big 10 at FanDuel Sportsbook 10 to 1 to come out of the Big 10 West and their win total sits at 7 flat I mean, when you look at this Minnesota team, clearly last year was not exactly what Golden Gophers hopeful uh, had anticipated. The defense was a downright dumpster fire. The offense never really seemed to find its swagger. You get Rashad Bateman to opt out, and the rest is more or less history. Tanner Morgan returns. Uh, They have a reliable starting quarterback there, but other than that for Minnesota, I'll admit, the more I dug into this team, the more confused I became because I'm not quite sure if they have a high ceiling if they have a high floor, or where it's going to land for P.J. Flex next trip around the sun in the Twin Cities? I'm not quite sure. And Minnesota was one of our largest regression candidates last season. And I was just looking at some power numbers this morning. From their peak in 2019 to their floor last year in 2020, our downgrade was 11 points. And, I mean, it was just... I know you and I talked in the new O.C., that was a downgrade. You lost two starting O-linemen that weren't available last year. And you mentioned Bateman opting out. And Tyler Johnson obviously moved on to the NFL along with seven starting defenders. Now, I've moved Minnesota back up a tick since their, their 2020 floor. But offensively, there's there's still two huge questions for me. And it's it's Mike Sanford Jr., the, the OC. Is he any good? And obviously, who emerges from a receiver group of 
Ottman Bell and Daniel Jackson and 11 freshmen, whether they're redshirt freshmen or true freshmen. Like, what does that receiver group look like? I am not a Mike Sanford Jr. guy. I think our listeners know that. I wasn't quite sure what P.J. Fleck was doing when he hired him. That might be one of his first missteps. You look at his last few stops. Western Kentucky, Utah State. Neither were good. Western Kentucky was ninth in offensive efficiency the year before Mike Sanford Jr. got there. By the time he left, they were 120th. And then he took the Utah State OC job. And the Aggies were 22nd offensive efficiency the year before he got there. He's there one year, and Utah State finished 77th in offensive efficiency. I wonder what Chucky Keaton's up to these days. <laughs> My favorite Utah State quarterback of all time, who I'm convinced was on campus for about nine years. He, yeah, that's what it feels like, didn't it? Yeah, he was awesome. So, I mean, you're looking at him, and obviously inherits the Minnesota job, and there wasn't as much talent there, but the offense regresses again. And Mike Sanford Jr. just, to me, isn't a great play caller. He's shown to struggle with in-game adjustments. So I think that's a big thing to watch this season. And I, when you look at that, I mean, what are teams going to do when they attempt to defend Minnesota? They're going to load the box. Because when you just look at how they're built right now, five massive O-linemen, and they return one of the most consistent running backs in the entire country in Ibrahim. But what happens when defense are going to load the box? Can Sanford adjust, right? And that's going to be the interesting thing to me. I'm not quite sure. And you're looking at least Tanner Morgan is going to be in year two of this system. So he's got to be able to figure out how to keep defenses honest with that receiver group. It, it's different when you're throwing to two NFL receivers in Tyler Johnson and Rashad Bateman. And even Bateman, he opted out last year, came back, played a few games. In those games, he was responsible for 50% of Minnesota's targets. They didn't have anybody else. And the passing game was just not good. Year over year, massive decline. Minnesota's 115th in EPA per pass differential from 2019 to 2020. Only 12 other teams in college football saw a worse decline year over year in EPA per pass play. And so a lot of that is on Sanford. A lot of that is on Tanner Morgan. He did regress, but he's got a full offseason. So there's no excuses this year. I, I think we'll see, obviously an uptick you can't be worse than you were last year and I think you will see some improvement right with with Morgan a little more comfortable in the system but I think we're also going to have to make a pretty large adjustment more than normal game to game I, I really believe that because the Gophers are going to be able to run the ball in certain teams right they're, they're just going to be able to just overpower certain teams and it's going to look like everything's fine offensively but then there's going to be games where Minnesota just can't bully defenses and there's going to be a massive drop-off in offensive production. Being able to make that manual game-to-game adjustment I think is going to be really, really important if you plan on betting Minnesota this year. Well, I can tell you one thing. Uh, Minnesota's opener, when they welcome in Ohio State, will be one worth watching with Ohio State right around a two-touchdown favorite as things stand right now at FanDuel Sportsbook. Rare that the Buckeyes will play on a Thursday night. You know Gopher Stadium will be absolutely electric. Uh, in yep. that type of environment. Biggest question, though, Payne, for as many as we have on the offensive side, can this defense get better? I mean, the magic number last year was 18, and I don't say that in a good context. They recorded 18 tackles for loss the entire season. That accounted for less than 5% of the total defensive snaps that the Gopher stop unit was out there. And while the offense regressed some, the defense completely fell off a damn cliff. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was to be expected. 
we knew there was going to be massive regression defensively last season. You can't replace seven starters on defense and four NFL draft picks from a program like Minnesota and not see a decline. And last season, flat out, like Minnesota just got bullied on defense, just beat up. They could not stop a nosebleed. They were shoved around in the trenches. They're outside the top 100 in line yards, stuff rate, and havoc rate. Literally, and you 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 mentioned this, 4% of opponent plays ended in a tackle for loss. Teams were successful in 50% of their offensive snaps against Minnesota. Over 52% of runs grade successful. I mean, they were just trounced. I, 111th in explosive run defense. Ball carriers contacted on average of three and a half yards downfield. But, I mean, it was just one of the worst defensive performances of the entire season from a Power 5 group. 116th in defensive EPA. But I don't... Listen, you replace seven starters, four on four that, that go to the NFL. Like, Minnesota just doesn't recruit at that level, even with P.J. Fleck. It's just not that type of program. So I expect to drop off. I did not expect that. I mean, that was that was horrific. The scary part for context, Todd, the schedule wasn't all that difficult last season. Minnesota didn't play the top three Big Ten offenses either. They evaded Ohio State and Penn State and Indiana. Minnesota didn't face an offense inside the top 35 in efficiency last season. So, you know, I they're, they're going to be improved because they have to be. There's only <laughs> one direction to go. But it wasn't like they played this murderer's row schedule last year. Um, I don't really like the way the defense is constructed either. Like, I hate the bend-but-don't-break philosophy. I just don't like it, right? And, and Minnesota doesn't play aggressively. They sit back in coverage. Minnesota sent blitz less than 15% of the time last season. Now, they go out. They get Niles Pinckney, the transfer from Clemson, who should help with that run game that we mentioned that was abysmal. He was uh, had the top run-stop percentage in the ACC in 2019. He was the team captain. So maybe he helps improve the run defense some. Again, I'm expecting improvement here, Todd, but obviously nothing remotely close to to their 2019 form when they made that run. Well, for expecting improvement in Minnesota, that fan base isn't as devout as the next program we're about to dissect. And that would be the Nebraska Cornhuskers, who see themselves 40 to 1 outsiders to win the Big 10, 14 to 1 to win the Big 10 West at FanDuel Sportsbook, and their win total, well, it would make Nebraska barely bowl eligible. As it sits at six, you do have to lay a dollar twenty to go over. I think it's suffice to say that the honeymoon for Scott Frost coming back home is officially over uh, at this particular point. And when you've said it time and time again, when a team's DNA doesn't reflect that of their head coach, it's a bit problematic. And last year, the silver lining for Nebraska was that the defense actually had a pulse. I'm still not quite sure how many times that offense had to be resuscitated, especially when you consider the Cornhuskers had two quarterbacks, one of which who's no longer on campus, uh, were one of only a handful of teams that found it difficult to score more than 20 points against that vaunted Golden Gover's defense that you just basically shredded. I have no idea what's happening to Nebraska's program, do you? Uh, I don't, but I can tell you from reading some of the quotes and all of that that the buzz has been improved culture and buy-in from those guys still theoretically wanting to be members of the program. The reason why I find that a little bit troublesome, why are so many of the program's top talents transferring out? I, I mean, I think we knew they weren't going to compete for national championships. But when Scott Frost went there, I'm like, this is the perfect combination because he's a great coach, good offensive coach, 
going to have ties to Florida, which is an area that you know Nebraska doesn't really recruit. But Scott Frost winning less than 38% of his games the first three seasons and offense, as you alluded to, being the reason why is shocking to me. I mean, I was so hopeful knowing that Wisconsin, the top dog in the Big Ten West, didn't recruit at this insurmountable level. I literally thought year three Nebraska would be fighting for being top dog in that division. I really did. And right off the bat, you see Scott Frost get his quarterback, right? It's his four-star quarterback. His name's Adrian Martinez, and you think like, the trajectory is going to be in one direction and it might happen quicker than we all think and it just hasn't happened. And for Nebraska to have a winning record and go over their win total this season, I think you hit it. Like It's on the offensive side of the ball. It's specifically on Adrian Martinez to figure it out. He's just got to improve as a passer. Simple as that. 132nd last season in EPA per pass attempt out of 174 quarterbacks. He was benched at one point. Even when the offensive line kept them clean, he wasn't good. 88 passer rating. Scott Frost tries to make life as easy as humanly possible on Adrian Martinez. Over 41% of his throws come with play action. Martinez couldn't even execute that. 84 passer rating when throwing with play action. There's absolutely zero pop to the pass game. Nebraska's 104th in explosive passing last year. Four passes went more than 30 yards all season. And then you mentioned the talent, right? Wendell Robinson, he leaves. He was their best receiver. He upgrades to the SEC. They do bring in Marquis Stepp, transfer from USC. He's Nebraska's projected lead back. Hasn't been healthy for any of his three seasons, as you know, at USC. He's already missed the spring with an injury. Now he's out of rehab and apparently working in the weight room, so he'll be ready for fall camp. But how reliable is he? And, you know, where does the ground game go if if Stepp isn't the guy we think he can be, if he isn't healthy? I mean, it's basically Adrian Martinez has been the ground game. One of the biggest anomalies in Nebraska's rushing metrics, I think, because it looks great in an Excel sheet, right? 28th in explosive runs last year. 19th in rushing success rate. All is well. And then you realize the vast majority of that was a byproduct of its quarterbacks running and not the running backs. So I I think it's a little fugazi, that, that ground game, and the love it's been getting. The positive is this, that Nebraska's offense should start hot. And they have to, right? They, they have to build that early confidence. They get Illinois, Fordham, and Buffalo's defense out of the gate. Those are all substantially below average defenses. A murderer's okay? row. I'm, I'm trying to be. This is a little kinder, gentler version of me. Well, substantially it's still also, below it's, average. That's it's, where still we're also, it's still also only July. By the time we get to the middle of August, there won't be a kinder, <laughs> gentler pain. Let's not kid ourselves. Yes, yes that's probably accurate. But, you know, if Nebraska's offense doesn't get into form early, I think things get ugly because you do have this difficult four-game stretch against defenses all projected to be inside our top 30. And I hate to oversimplify things, Todd, but this season, and I think its success, is is all on Adrian Martinez throwing arm. You know? I, Turner Cochran looks to be the guy, the four-star 2020 freshman. He's going to be the starting left tackle. Everyone's raving about the, the 2020 freshman receiver. Xavier Betts, who is this homegrown product. If those two can be major com- contributors, I think you know the offense takes that that leap, but relying on like two really, really young guys at key positions, it's tough. This this is all on Adrian Martinez. He's got to figure out how to be an accurate passer. And it's, it's tough to say that, right? Because accuracy is one thing. It's probably the toughest thing to improve on as a quarterback. Yeah, you mentioned how prolific the quarterbacks were in the ground game. 
Quarterbacks accounted for 55% of the rushing yards that Nebraska was able to generate last season. And while that might be fine, if Eric Crouch or Scott Frost is leading an option offense, probably not what you want to see now with 37 (laughs) of the 55 explosive runs that group generated also coming from that quarterback spot. Now, for all the questions and concerns we have about the team offensively, maybe a little bit of optimism uh, on the defensive side pain as they bring back a slew uh, of six-year starters returned to a run defense that was surprisingly stingy last year uh, by what we anticipated coming into the season. Uh, And with that schedule of opponents, they can potentially build some confidence right out of the gates. And if the offense gets clicking, hey, who knows? Nebraska starts 3-0, and suddenly we're talking about this team being semi-relevant as far as the conference landscape is concerned. The six-year plan, that's like Jeff Spicoli territory there. But uh, you are, you're right. There's, there's lots of optimism, I think, defensively for, for Nebraska. And the coaching staff sounds super pumped. And, you know, Nebraska's top 10 in returning production because of all those old guys coming back, five super seniors. Coaches do think the D-line is bulked up a bit. And... They're not going to be pushed around as much this season in the trenches. I just wonder, you know, how good good means for Nebraska's defense in 2021. You know, I, I would guess if Nebraska finishes top 35 in defensive efficiency, that's a really good season. So it's always important to kind of contextualize because, you know, there's a lot of Nebraska fans out there that think they have a chance to win the, the championship every year. And you say, like, a defense is going to be good. And they're like, oh, black shirts are back, baby, top five. <laughs> I think a good year is like, you know, top 35 here. And that's the reason why I always try to use the word relative. Because, you know, Todd, you read these articles. You read a lot of the preview content. 95% of what you read is is rainbows and pots of gold. And so you kind of have to be able to, to separate that as you're going through things. And, you know, when I look at Nebraska's defense, it's, it's going to be a better unit. Um, and we saw major improvement last year. But they still don't create a lot of havoc. 83rd in the country. It's partly why they didn't turn anyone over. It's a defense that was 87th in explosive pass defense. And on throws 20 or more yards, 115th in the country. When Nebraska got teams in known passing situations, they rarely you know, disrupted the quarterback 102nd in passing down sack rate. So you know, no doubt Nebraska has a ton of experience. And we did see a nice leap. They went from 60th to, to top 40 last year in defensive efficiency year over year. But, you know, is that experience this season going to actually take the next step? So, again, I think, like, if you're fighting to be, like, a top 30 or 35 defense, awesome. I mean, the reality is there's a reason why you have to come back for your sixth year. Um, and then Yeah, you also they might want to be wonder. doctors, Payne. Maybe they're starting their medical <laughs> degrees on campus. Yes. God, you always yes. got to be so negative. All, all of them are Myron Roll. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you kind of have to, like figure out also was the improvement a byproduct of poor offenses you know you remove ohio state from the equation nebraska playing in a power five conference ended up facing offenses with an average efficiency rank of 60th last season this year we're projecting a schedule about 10 to 15 percent more difficult than last season so you also have to kind of put that into the equation of was last year the best we're going to see from from a nebraska defense Yeah, and I mean, I think this is a program that really has to break it all down before they can build it back up. For those folks that believe, much like we did, that they were going to be competing for Big Ten West titles, that doesn't appear to be the case as their recruiting right now isn't even on the same level as Wisconsin, who's actually gotten better in that department, which is a credit to Paul Christ, as he's finally started bringing top 20 recruiting classes. So the road to relevance 
for the Nebraska Cornhuskers appears to be a little bit more of an uphill battle than what Scott Frost even thought he was going to encounter when he left Orlando to make his way there. Uh, I mean, Payne, those are probably the most eight most relevant teams. I know there will be a couple loyal listeners who go, I can't believe you guys didn't dive in to last year's Big Ten West champions in the form of the Northwestern Wildcats. And the simple reality of it is, this is a Northwestern team who on paper doesn't appear to be as good as what we saw last year. We'll see how the quarterback battle plays itself out with Ryan Holinsky uh, opposite Hunter Johnson. Uh, and to Pat Fitzgerald's credit, this team typically does more with less, but Northwestern, a team that probably got lost on the cutting floor. There was one other team, though, and I kind of wanted to get your take real briefly on him because when you look at the Big Ten East, we know how tough it is to compete with the Ohio States, the Penn States, theoretically Michigan, uh, and now Indiana. But a team who's really raised its overall recruiting profile and level of uh, on-field talent would be the Maryland Terrapins. I mean, this was a group last year who combined from an offense, you know, passing offense, look legitimate under Little Tua. The passing defense was one of the team's biggest strengths, but largely because nobody had to actually try and run the ball into their defensive front. Uh, everyone, excuse me, everyone did run the ball into their defensive front. And Maryland finds themselves at 100 to 1 to win the conference, 50 to 1 to win the East. Neither of those things are going to happen. They brought in one of your favorite guys as their offensive coordinator in Dan Enos. Um, yep. So clearly there are ties to the Tua family, and I'm sure that played a major role. And while I might not think the most of Mike Loxley as a head coach when it comes to X's and O's, this is a team I'm mildly intrigued by because the talent level, far better than what you'd expect them to get in College Park and starting to get back to a semblance of what they were under Ralph Friedgen. I'm just not sure if Loxley could be that guy to get him over the hump. Yeah, there is some talent there. And they're recruiting at a level that is certainly better than what most think Maryland can recruit to. I think we're projecting them higher. You just wonder when you look at the schedule, you know, where are the wins going to come from? They had a couple outbursts last season where they won some games. They might, they they weren't projected to win in. I'm looking right now, our win total projections like 5.85 on Maryland. So I think you are going to see that, that leap forward in terms of the on-field product. But there's always this saying is like, first you lose big, then you lose small, then you win small, then you win big. And I think Maryland's probably in that lose small territory before they venture to the next tier. But ultimately, there is some talent here. There are some guys that Loxley's brought in that have just a slew of talent. And I think this is the year that they make that improvement on the field. And it might not necessarily show itself in the win column. And then you're hoping that that trajectory to next year is the the season where it's really put in the win column. Yeah, I would agree completely. And I think when you look at Maryland, if they're going to have a successful season as far as the win total is concerned, uh, we're going to get a pretty good indication of what the Terrapins will bring week in, week out with their week one date, a de facto coin flip game in their own building. Well, they'll be about a four, four and a half point underdog as they welcome in West Virginia. If you're able to pull off the upset there, the potential to start 4-0 before you host Iowa is very realistic with games against Howard at Illinois State and playing host to Kent State. So if you're Coach Loxley, I think you go in treating the West Virginia game like your Super Bowl uh, as you need to build confidence with some of these guys. And we saw what Talia Tagovailoa could produce what he had time in the pocket. The receiving core is extremely deep. In my opinion, you'll need a number one running back to emerge. And the defense, well, it's not going to be great by any stretch of the imagination. You just can't give up 230-plus yards per game on the ground. So they're going to need a little bit more proven depth. So I think Maryland, for me, 
Um, one of the more intriguing teams, not necessarily for the best reasons, um, but one that'll bear watching as I think the market could struggle with proper valuations if they start hot or if the converse is true, that they start cold and don't adjust down fast enough with them. Yeah, ultimately, I think there's there's some variance in the pass game with Tua and that receiver group. A lot of talent. Let's see if it comes to fruition. So this is a pass unit that could be damn good or it could struggle. I actually think their defense is going to improve greatly. So if you get that combination of a much improved defense in the pass game flying high, you have a chance to blow through that win total even though the schedule is, is difficult. But it's it's really an interesting team to see what Loxley's building there. He feels like maybe not the best X's and O's coach, but if he just takes on the role as CEO and, and uses those relationships to continue to bring in talent that probably is better than the Maryland football program should, things are heading in a positive direction. No doubt about it. And I think, you know, as we kind of put a bow and encapsulate everything that we've broken down in a little bit more than an hour in the Big Ten, I don't want to say that it's necessarily the case, but it feels like this is a league going through a bit of a transitional period, not only with the top dog in Ohio State, but some questions surrounding teams in the West. And it feels that when Michigan isn't quite of national relevance, and people can say what they want over the last couple of years, sure, they haven't been Ohio State, but they've at least been in the discussion that the complete talent that we're going to see from top to bottom in the Big Ten, maybe a step down or two uh, as they go through a transitional year. I think what we would call this is the ACC. I mean, basically you have Ohio State being your Clemson, and then there's just a lot of mediocrity in the middle where variance and you know close game situations are going to prevail here. And so you're seeing some of those mid-tier teams that have the potential to have a little bit of an outburst this season. But ultimately, there's just a lot of middling stuff going on here from the other teams within this conference. Yeah, it should be fun to watch as we try and figure out how these teams will go in their pecking order, not necessarily at the top, but more that middle of the pack and what team can pull the Indiana-type surprise through the Big Ten. Encourage folks to follow Payne on Twitter, at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there. Most importantly, follow the podcast at BetTheBoardPod. Go to FanDuel.com backslash BetTheBoard. Take advantage of all those generous sign-up bonuses that are there just in time for football season. $1,000 risk-free bet. All the details in the clickable link with this podcast. And Payne, as has become tradition around here as we do all of these conferences from top to bottom, sometimes they avail themselves to a best bet opportunity, sometimes they don't. Is there an opportunity for us to make a dollar or two as it pertains to Big Ten play this upcoming season? Not at the moment, but what I'm going to say is this. Our goal is to churn out 13 preview podcasts, eight in the NFL, five in college football, I don't know if we're going to get to 13 best bets. I'm just being honest. However, I do want to spit out best bets as we're betting them and before the market moves. So we do have a best bet. It's just not going to be in the Big Ten and it's not going to be in college football. But I think it's one we need to attack now because by the time we get to it for NFL season, the line is not going to be there. And I think it has the potential to actually get to nine and a half from where it sits now. And we're going to stick to a team in the Midwest. I want to go with the Minnesota Vikings over eight and a half wins. There is some juice attached to it, but I truly believe Aaron Rodgers or no Aaron Rodgers, this has the potential to get the nine and a half. And it's a little bit of an advantage there because if Aaron Rodgers is not there, then you feel supremely confident about this. So I think we want to attack this before 
NFL camp starts, and that's the best way to approach it. We'll dive into Minnesota, obviously, in deeper detail when we get to the NFL side of things, but I really like what the offense is doing this season. Kirk Cousins is going to have a little bit of pressure now that they've drafted a quarterback. You pick up your you know 10-year starting left tackle in the draft. I think the receiver group continues to improve. And defensively, the thing we've hated about Minnesota the last few years, it feels like everything that I am seeing is it's going to be basically a brand new defense. You know, you're getting healthier with Pierce and Daniil Hunter. The linebackers will be much healthier. And the question mark we had last year is young cornerbacks learning Zimmer's system in a shortened offseason. Well, what we did see last year was that absolutely came to fruition. They struggled, but they also showed the ability to make a ton of plays, I think, in another year in his system, one that's very difficult to learn. Those young guys will emerge a little bit better. So we want to get out ahead, grab the Minnesota Vikings over eight and a half wins. It is a little juicy, but I do believe we're going to get to nine and a half by the time the season kicks off. Look at that. A curveball that even I didn't anticipate coming on this fine podcast. For all our We kept that one in the glove. Nobody saw it. You know, that's the old hidden ball trick right there. Yes. Uh, you know, the pitcher, you walk up to the bump, you see the rosin bag. Henry Rowan Gardner slips the ball to his first baseman and applies the tag, knowing that he doesn't have the same arm to try and throw heat by uh, some of the Mets hitters in Rookie of the Year. Yes, yes. Perfect so. analogy. Minnesota Vikings over eight and a half. Now, I do have to ask the question because we know it's going to flood it's our juiced. timeline. Yes. yes. What is the uh, acceptable cutoff price at eight and a half? Just bet the thing. <laughs> I know you're from like a different school. I'm from the I'm from the school of there's an edge here and it's going to be nine and a half. Just make sure you bet over. No, I'm not from that school. In. I'm just trying to cut it off at the pass because we know our listeners yes. that I we've think, taught to I be think price sensitive and, and are going to fire I think into your one feet. thing is we'll we'll discuss this when we get to the NFL side. But with the 17th game, you're looking at half wins decreasing a little bit in value. You're at about 45 cents in value there. So you are looking depending on where you get it right, like. Nine hasn't quite materialized yet. It's basically eight and a half minus 70. Do I want to go over nine? Not really, but uh, if you're going to get nine around even, like that's that's perfectly fine. Again, I do think this is probably going to get to nine and a half, potentially juiced. Um, and so it's just one of these things where we've bet it, we want to get out there and attack it, and uh, most numbers at this current point are, are still really good. Take full advantage. Sometimes you don't have to get to the window with a college football best bet. All money pays just the same with the NFL, and at least we stayed in Big Ten country, so a hat tip to you, Mr. Payne. Any final uh, words of wisdom, advice, apologies to those folks that may find themselves rooting for Rutgers, Purdue, Illinois, and a couple of the other Big Ten teams that we didn't decide were uh, worth us delving into today? No, I don't have much other than... Illinois might be a little bit better than their win projection. That's about it. Look at you buying it to old Burt Bielema. Nothing else. Back next week with, I believe, the Big 12. What do we decide for next week? Which direction are we going? Yeah, Big 12 is what it is then. For Pain Insider, you can follow Pain on Twitter, at Pain Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there as well. Best of luck with all of your preseason handicapping. And while we didn't have a Big Ten best bet, didn't keep us from uh, invading the NFL ranks in Big Ten country with the Minnesota Vikings. And come the month of December, hopefully we'll see you at the window. 
Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Bet the Board ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondry Plus and Apple Podcasts. But before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondry.com survey.